Well, today we finish our sermon series for real. We are in a series called Don't Move the Lampstand, and that is a series on the purpose of the church. Uh, Way back in Exodus chapter 25 in the Old Testament, God gave Moses uh, some instructions. Basically, he told Moses to construct a portable worship facility, the, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting is what it was called. And there was symbolic furniture that Moses was to put in it. And the furniture pointed to um, inward realities. That's kind of what a symbol does. It's an outward sign that points to an inward reality. One of the pieces of the furniture was a table. And on this table, there was bread, the bread of the presence. And this bread was a symbol to remind God's people as they were journeying through the desert to the promised land, out of slavery, into freedom, that God's always enough. This bread was a reminder to to us, too, the church through the ages, that all the hunger we have in our lives, all the longings, the desires that we never quite can satisfy, they will all be satisfied only in God. Augustine put it this way. He said, the human heart is restless until it comes to find its rest in God. Maybe some of you are restless today, hungry, thirsty, feeling like there's an itch you can't quite scratch. The bread is the reminder that God is the source, the provision, the satisfaction. But there was another piece of furniture, and it was a lamp stand, a menorah. It had seven lights on it. It was a big lamp stand, as tall as I am, and it was to be put strategically in front of the table to light up the bread. Fast forward all the way to the end of the 66 books of our Bible, Revelation, this incredible letter that the Apostle John wrote to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Turkey, modern-day Turkey. He wrote on behalf of God, speaking with the authority of God. And in the first and second chapter, we understand through John's letter that the lampstand is actually representing us, you, me, Anybody who follows Jesus, after all, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Anyone who eats of me will never be hungry. He's the source. And so if you think about it, if we ask the question, what is the purpose of the church? The purpose is to shine or illuminate the bread of life, to illuminate to the watching world who Jesus is. And so this series has been a powerful metric by which we can measure all of our activity and where we spend money and time and investment Is this indirectly or directly going to light up Jesus? Is it shining a light on God's heart for human beings, that he loves us so much he died for us, and that he wants to be at the very center of our life and provide for us in an intimate, relational kind of way? And when we get distracted, you could effectually say we have moved the lampstand. In fact, John in Revelation says, on behalf of God, if you don't, return to your first love, Jesus Christ, if you don't have a deep relationship with Christ, I'm going to come take the lampstand. The light's going to go out. I don't know exactly what that means, but I don't want that for any of us. So today we're going to go to Revelation. It's a book that I've heard um, the majority of people in churches want to hear preachers preach on because they don't understand it, and the majority of preachers don't want to preach on it because they don't understand it, right? It's apocalyptic genre, end of the world. It's full of dragons and symbolism and all sorts of wild stuff, and it attracts wild people, frankly. There's a lot of people who really like it because they're eccentric and it's eccentric, and we just tend to ignore it in the North American church. And yet, 
Just like if you went to the movies and you know the difference between a romantic comedy or an action film, there's genres, right? There's genres in the, in the Bible. And so this apocalyptic literature genre, if we understand how to read it, has some clarity. Uh, a few words about Revelation before we jump in. The book of Revelation has become a bit of a sideshow throughout the ages, whereas preachers and teachers and theologians have made the whole point of the book of Revelation to guess when Jesus is going to return, which is ironic because the book says we won't know when he will return. And yet it calls us to be in this constant state of readiness. And, and that's interesting, and we're going to talk about that. If you're taking notes, um, I'd like us to start with the text, and then I'm going to make an interesting claim. Uh, let's just go right to Revelations. Revelation uh, chapter 1, 4 through 8. John, this is a greeting. That's the text, just the greeting of the letter. That's what we're reading. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was. Right away, he's following the ancient formula of a letter. An epistle is the, the big word for that. You identify who you are and who you're writing the letter to, and, and yet he does something different. Usually, the ancient template of an ancient letter is you wish good health on people. But in the New Testament, the, the letter writers of the New Testament had actually substituted the good health part for grace and peace to you. That's interesting, just as a side note, that it seems like they're more concerned with the grace that God pours out on people and, and the peace, the shalom, the wholeness that he pours out for all the people they're writing the letter to, as opposed to just the circumstances. Not that God doesn't heal our physical health, but they're not as preoccupied as everyone else was in the ancient world with health alone. Probably because they have an eternal perspective. So grace and peace substituted for good health to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. What an entrance he makes. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all people on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. If you're taking notes, the first consideration is this. I'm just going to, whoop, my uh, remote is a little off there. Do you have any idea who you're dealing with? That's how you could summarize what we just read, Revelations 1, 4 through 8. It's an odd way to start a letter. I mean, you write letters, you write emails. You don't say to him who was and has and always has been and he's freed us and we're now given this incredible purpose in his kingdom and he's coming back and whoa. It's as if John is saying, yes, I'm technically writing you this letter, but I have been swept up in a vision and I had an encounter with God, the living God. And you need to just on the beginning, the onset, understand that God is asking something like, do you know who is offering a relational love? Do you have any idea who you're dealing with? It's an interesting question because we become very familiar with the idea of God and we almost think of God like 
anyone else in our life. You know, just, oh, yeah, there's God. But think about it. It's going to hurt your head if you do. He never, ever had a beginning. You had one. I had one. He didn't. Anything that you've ever found slightly enjoyable, let alone really enjoyable, his idea. He created it. Anything that you would die for, anyone you would die for, he invented it. It's God. Do we have any idea who we're dealing with? And, and, and John, writing to these seven churches, will go on to basically give them a, a report card of sorts and just say, look, I'm writing the letter, but actually God's writing through me, and, and I need to give you some good news and some bad news. And so he has this to say to one of the churches, I know your deeds, this is the church in Ephesus, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. This is weird. John's writing this, but clearly this isn't John. How would he know all of this stuff? God is speaking through him. That's why we say the scriptures are inspired. They're God-breathed. Yet I hold this against you, God speaking. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Maybe you grew up in a church where it was very ritualistic, and, and rituals can be very helpful, but it was cold to you, and there was never an emphasis on relationship. This is in the Bible. It's saying the one thing that God takes issue with is, is us wandering away from a relationship, a deep, intimate relationship with him. That's what keeps him up at night. Not even your sin, or your church attendance, or your lack of giving, or any of that. It's, why aren't you coming closer to me? Why don't you want to talk to me? Why don't you surrender to me? Why don't you want to love me? Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Do you remember when you first experienced that euphoric feeling of love? Or maybe it was more lust, some version, some mixture, but it was heady. You just felt like all you could do is think about that person, and you just, whoa, and you just needed to be around him or her, and whoa. And it was intoxicating, and you needed more of that, and you wanted to be with them, and I remember when my wife and I were dating, I was kind of in that stage. We were sitting on a couch, and she was like a good church girl. So we didn't kiss for like eight months of dating. I feel like I should get a medal for that. <laughs> we're just sitting there, and I'm just kind of infatuated looking at her. And she said, so are we just going to sit here and stare at each other's face? And I was like, uh, ouch. But yeah, I kind of like that. <laughs> Do you remember that feeling? It's almost like God is saying, you once had that with me. Why don't you go back to that? Why don't you ponder for a minute about how good I am to you, how much I love you? Think about it. Everybody you will be in a love relationship with, a parent, a child, a romantic partner, a spouse, even a friend, they will take it to the bank, misunderstand you at times. They're going to get you wrong at times. They're going to 
just not really get you. And, and that hurts, doesn't it? it, it there's like a distance that happens when, when we're misunderstood. There's one being in the universe that will never, ever, ever misunderstand you. He sees you to the absolute bottom. He gets you more than you get you. And seeing all of you, he loves every bit of you. And that's God. And he's saying, do you have any idea who you're dealing with? A few years ago, I was in a small group. This was before we had a daughter. It was raising boys. It was crazy small group. There was like 15 couples, and they all only had boys. And it was just a, a horror show when we would go, go, go to our house, and they would just destroy whatever house we were at. And we would, the adults would sit up and read a book called uh, Parenting. Um, <laughs> it, it was. It's just called Parenting. Paul Tripp. Good book. And the one thing I remember from that book is a chapter called Power Tools. And essentially, the, the author said, when it comes to parenting, there are three primary power tools that can affect change in children and people. Fear, shame, anger. And if you think about it, when you're stressed out and the kids are going nuts, you don't even have to be a parent. You could be a roommate in college and your roommate's bothering you or whatever. You can use fear, shame, or anger to affect behavioral change in another person pretty pretty quick, can't you? Especially with little people, because you can be like, I'm bigger than you! Stop it! We had a friend sleep over last night, one of the boys' friends, and they were being loud, you know, because that's what you do at sleepovers, and I, I pulled out a few power tools. It was kind of like, stop it! Go upstairs and bother mom! <laughs> and it works for a little bit, but it doesn't work for that long. And shame, of course, is a great power tool. Oh, how dare... We don't do that. That's not what we do. Hmm... You know, we do this with dogs, too, and they look ashamed. <laughs> do you have the dogs that, like, do, they, like, chew up your sofa, and they, like, won't look you in the eye? And then there's fear. If you do that one more time, I just used it the other day with my, my daughter. She won't cut the, the nook habit. She won't quit it. She's going to be, like, 15 years old and have a pacifier. It's terrifying. Her teeth are getting malformed, and, and you know, she's going to be four. It's like, we got to knock that off. And so I, in, in my frustration, I, I cut the end off of one of the nooks. And she looked at me with rage, but then just like, but now, every time she uses a pacifier outside of the appropriate designated area in her, in her bedroom and nap time and bedtime, if, if I see one, she looks at it and she goes, don't cut it. And she like runs. And so power tools work for a little bit. And I'm not saying not to use them, but the author of that book is saying, don't rely on those because there's something actually more powerful than a power tool. And if you just use power tools, you will get maybe a smelling salt reaction. It'll wake people up. It'll get a change for a little bit, but it won't change a heart. And I think God, who is the best parent, Psalm 103 says he is like the most compassionate and understanding father among us, understands this. And, and it's like he uses John to open this letter to these seven churches with a power tool and says like, hey, this dude never had a beginning. He never has an end. He's behind everything. Like, think about who you're talking to. It's a power tool. It's a little bit of fear. It's a little bit of shame. It's a little bit of anger, but it doesn't end there. Then it takes this fatherly tone and, and he says, return to your first love. If you're taking notes, another way to summarize Revelations 1-7, which is, look, he's coming on the clouds. 
and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen is to say Jesus is real. He's coming back any moment. So live accordingly. Now think about it. John's writing this, and he's one of the oldest apostles. He's watched disciples and apostles die off in his lifetime. There was this sense in which everyone thought Jesus was very literally saying, in your generation, I will come back. But he didn't in the first century. And so John is being used by the Holy Spirit to write these things, and he had to be struggling with, when is he coming back? I thought he'd be back by now. And yet, John is able to live in that tension, as we're invited to live in the tension of readiness. If you notice, we have somebody uh, serving in the Army National Guard with us. He got permission from his captain to come to church. Thanks, Josh. Great to see you in uniform. The Army National Guard's an interesting thing. And I know Josh has served on active duty and in the Army Guard, because when you're in war, you know you're in war, and that's a whole thing, and I've been there. And then there's drill weekends in the guard, and that's a different thing. You go to like a, basically like a big gym and line up, and you're, this doesn't feel like Iraq or Afghanistan. And what do they do at these drill weekends? They practice something called operational readiness. Our military needs to be ready at any moment to deploy and defend our country. And it's kind of a weird thing to go to drill weekends. I remember that. Because it sure doesn't feel like there's a war on. You do land navigation operations at like Rosemount High School or somewhere like that, and you're walking around and you feel odd. You're dressed up and you're, you know, you're, you're dressed for the wedding and no wedding to go to. You're dressed for the war and no war to fight. What do they do? They practice readiness. And yet that is why our military is second to none. We're ready all the time. Maybe that's what John is saying. He's not saying, spend your life guessing when Jesus will come back, he's saying, spend every moment assuming he'll be back any minute. You know, travelers who um, go international, I've heard the tip, and I've tried it myself, that if you can, set your watch to the time zone you're going to as early as possible. That'll help with the jet lag. We live in the time zone, not that we're in, but in the time zone to come. And maybe that's what John is inviting us to do in Revelations. He's saying, do you not want to move the lampstand? Do you not want to completely miss the purpose of the church and miss the purpose of your life? Live as if Jesus is coming back. Set your watch to lampstand o'clock. Live as if he's coming back. Think about it. Some of you have teenagers, and you have done the precarious thing where you go on a vacation, and you leave the teenagers at home. It's risky business, right? Who knows what'll happen? Some of you were teenagers, and you know how that went. It's church, confess, come on. Mom and dad left, and you set your watch to when they would be home. And you calculated, you back-planned that. You're like, wow, I could do the following for inappropriate things. I could have a party, I could do that. And if I leave a good 41 minutes right before they come home, I can glue the vase back together that got smashed. I can fix this. I can do this. And I can act as if everything has been kosher and great while they were gone. That's kind of what we do, right? Our assumption is the better way to live would be in rebellion towards the authority over us. And we can just clean it up right before they get back. It reminds me of the shirt at the mall I saw once. Everybody look busy. Jesus is coming back. <laughs> right? 
just look like you're doing what he wanted you to do. And that's kind of the sense. We, because sin and selfishness is a virus we all have, our, our lean, our tendency is to say, I've got time. I'll, I'll just put it all together right before he comes back. And yet John is giving us just wisdom here, and he's saying, no, you're missing it. You think that the house party and the craziness and the kitchen just is destroyed with dishes, you think that's where satisfaction is. What I'm telling you is if you live in accordance with a perfect parent's love and law, while they're gone, the reunion's going to be so sweet and your life's going to be so rich. Return to your first love. Surrender, John says. So if power tools, anger, fear, shame, might wake us up, but they're not going to affect lasting change, what will? What would make someone so obedient and steady and loyal and in your corner? You, you know in, intuitively the answer, don't you? Serious love. Serious love. Serious love is the only motivation strong enough to obey when you don't want to obey when it doesn't make sense to you. And you get little glimpses of this when you see somebody who's truly in love with another person. A lot of times in, in marriage, this shows up in what we watch. Do you know how much I despise romantic comedies? I would rather get a root canal <laughs> with no Novocaine. Do you know what I like even less than that? The theater. I just don't like the theater. Do you know who I married? A woman who worked for the Los Angeles Theater and then the Guthrie Theater and now the Minneapolis Orchestra who has lifetime free tickets to the theater. <laughs> Do you know why I go to the theater? Because I love her more than I hate that. My love for her is enough. I'm going to get flack after this. She's like, we haven't been to the theater in a long time. I don't know how serious that love is. <laughs> but, but seriously, do you love God? Do you really love God? Now, sure, there's kind of an evolution of love. You know, there's that kind of puppy love that's all heady and emotional and unrealistic and idealistic and Usually that starts things off and then you start doing life together with a spouse or even in a friendship and, you know, the, the real jagged edges of your personality show up and, you know, you find out that, that women actually pass gas and men, you know, sleep with their mouth open and it's not a good look and, you know, all, all that stuff and, and, and yet there's a deep kind of maturing that happens. I've been married for 14 years and I love that woman more now than I did in that infatuation stage when all I wanted to do is sit on the couch and stare at her face. We haven't done that in a long time. But there is a loyalty, a depth. Now take that and assume for a moment that that's just a symbol, like a piece of furniture in the tent of meeting in Exodus 25. That romantic love itself between a man and a woman is merely a prop for a sermon meant to point us to a romantic love with the creator himself. Some of you have vibrant romantic love. You have great affection for your friends. And you have a very cold, unmanaged, unkept, 
lazy relationship with God himself. Now, the irony is that God's not mad at you because of that. He's just disappointed. Isn't that the worst? I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. And he's not shaming you. He's disappointed like I would be disappointed if my kids turned down a vacation to the most amazing amusement park that I wanted to take them. What? Because they just wanted to stay and play video games. Because I can see what, what memories we would make. And I can know, because I'm their dad, how amazing that would be. And I can see how our relationship would deepen and, and the joy that they would experience. And just because they can't see it, because they have hang-ups and fears and they've found something else that's shiny and interesting, they won't go with me and I won't force them, but I hurt for that because I want them to come on the journey. And maybe God wants that with you. And maybe your whole life, you have just kind of done the stiff arm. You go to church You've accepted his forgiving love. You'll be in heaven with him, of course. But it's like you just are not that into him. But the irony, of course, is that anything you are into is just a dim shadow, a reflection of his goodness. It's just a, a, just a very faint, weak substitute. Have you ever had watered-down Coke or Pepsi? Like, really watered-down? It's nasty, right? You just... Like McDonald's, you left it there for too long, and now it's mostly ice, and then you take it, and you're like, oh, I don't even, I'm going to drink a little more of it, but oh, that's bad. Some of our affections, our relationships in life, when compared to the vibrant joy we could be experiencing in our relationship with God, are very similar to watered-down Pepsi. And I guess it quenches your thirst. But it is so far from the real thing that if you had even a sip of the real thing, you would never, ever look to that. So how do we get this serious love with, with God? Do we have to go to church more? I guess, maybe. Do we need to act better? No. It's an it's a issue of one word that Americans in particular don't love. My love for God will only become as serious as my surrender to God. Anybody uh, like me go and see uh, Call of the Wild yesterday or Friday? I saw it. It was great. And one other person. Great film. Very wholesome. Kind of a heavy rewrite because the story is 100 years old and they cleaned it up a little bit, but good for the whole family. And in preparation of me taking the boys to that movie, uh, I read Call of the Wild. I was reading it out loud to them and then I stopped because, you know, there's some stuff in there that probably would be over their head. And, but I kept going, and I kept reading it before bed last week. And then I, in my copy, it has Call of the Wild and White Fang, two novels by Jack London. And I kept reading that, and I read White Fang. And I was, a, I was reading White Fang the other night, this story of this half-wolf, half-dog who has this tenuous relationship with uh, earthly uh, human masters. His first master is a Native American is very harsh with him and beats him and there's no affection and no love and then he kind of runs with the pack in the wild for a little bit and then he has this terrible uh, uh, white master who basically uh, tortures the, the poor animal and makes him do dog fights for money and I mean PETA would be just horrified by the treatment right and, and so he's kind of this damaged good 
of a dog, half dog, half wolf, until he finds this new master who kind of comes in and rescues him right before he, he's almost dead. It's actually a similar plot theme in Call of the Wild. And what's interesting is Jack London committed suicide before he was 40 years old. He was an alcoholic. He was a depressed man. He was an atheist. And yet he's Christ-haunted. In his writings, you can see all over there that the biggest longing in Jack London, the novelist's heart, is not to see another mountain in Alaska or the Yukon, not to write another novel. He was the, the most wealthy guy in his age. Like, he was the the Bezos of his age. He sold so many books. He had all the money in the world, everything, all this talent, and what just pours out of his writings and his page is this longing for a love that would not disappoint. And he writes it through the perspective of dogs. And so there's this portion in Call of the Wild that is just fascinating where the dog basically comes to trust for the first time a human master, and not just trust, to surrender. Let me read just a, a portion from it. It was the wild in him, talking about the dog, white fang, the fear of hurt and of the trap that had given rise to the panicky impulses to avoid contact. It was the mandate of his instinct that his head must always be free. He had to hang up with anybody touching his head because he was beat and hurt. And now with the love master, that's what he, he refers to his, his uh, new human master. With the love master, his snuggling was the deliberate act of putting himself into a position of hopelessness, hopeless helplessness, hopeless helplessness. It was an act an expression of perfect confidence, of absolute surrender. As though he said, I put myself into thy hands, work thou thy will with me. It's really a moving part of the book. I mean, the dog basically wouldn't even be touched without snapping at this guy. And then gradually over time, he, he started to sense the goodness of this man how he didn't want to use the dog to make money. He didn't want this dog to just pull a sled or perform. He didn't want to just beat this dog or humiliate the dog. He actually just loved the dog for the dog's sake, not because the dog was so lovable. He's half wolf, half dog, and he wants to bite the guy's hand off, but because the master is so loving, and he starts to pet him, and the dog lets him pet him, but he has to growl the whole time while he pets the dog, and, and that's a weird part of the book. And then eventually he starts to, White Fang, forego little comforts and little pleasures in his life. Like, rather than going and finding something to eat, he'll stay up late just to catch a glimpse of the master's face as he comes home from work. He gets out of his little snow cocoon, sleeping outside early, to wait on the porch just to see the master's face when he opens up, just for the beauty of seeing and enjoying the master's face. And it's just this amazing piece of writing where I'm reading this and thinking, how is this guy not getting it? He's writing the best symbolism I've ever read in my life about our relationship with God. He's doing it through a dog's perspective, which is admittedly difficult to write, I assume. And he doesn't understand that the one who made the very mountains he's enthralled with, the dog he, he's so into, is calling to him. He doesn't understand that he's the broken dog that he is biting at the very hand of the master who wants to embrace him. 
you know, I, I know this. God is more just and more loving and more creative and more redemptive than I am. And so I know that if there is a chance that Jack London wants to be in the presence of that kind of master for all of eternity, he, he is. But all we have to go on is that we have a choice in life to accept Jesus Christ's forgiving love and enter into a deep relationship with him, live with him in this life and the next, or just to kind of do our own thing, to mistakenly look at God and impose on God the cruelty of previous masters. And so the book kind of comes to a climax when this incredible moment, White Fang kind of gets up on two legs and just jumps at his master and he puts his head right here and they just embrace. And that's what I just read. It's just this total surrender. I think we have moments of that in our life with God. Oftentimes when there's severe pain or shame or a health diagnosis where where we're willing to do the absolute surrender thing. But it's just a fleeting moment and it's as if John writing Revelation, understands that we all have had moments, but we haven't had momentum. And he's saying, do the things you did at first. It's like he's saying, snuggle with God. Put your head in his hands. Work thou thy will with me, God. Are you interested in that invitation? I want you to think for just a moment, and I'll do it too, but think about your life. Imagine for a moment that 2020 is the last year that you will see. Statistically, that is true for probably one of us in the room. You're not going to see 2021. Just, Just thought experiment. It's not a prophetic word. How would you live your life differently if 2020 was it? And we're already almost into March. What'd you do? Something tells me you would put an extreme emphasis on relationships that matter most to you. Something tells me you would do something that you have put off for many years. You would totally surrender to God. Why? Well, because... You're going to see him face to face before 2021 ball drops. And so it just makes sense. That's what we do, right? In college, I used to just put off those papers until the last minute, and then there's like this surge of adrenaline that goes through you. Like, oh, I have to write a paper. It kind of focuses you. Any other professional procrastinators in the room? All right. Maybe. Just maybe we're supposed to live with that type of expectation, that type of readiness, not out of fear or shame or anger. Maybe we are supposed to wake up every morning and remind ourselves, Mike, do you have any idea who you're dealing with? This is the creator of the universe. Mike, do you know that Jesus is real and he is coming back any moment? And you might not live to the end of the day, so live accordingly. Mike, do you know that serious love is the only motivation strong enough for you to obey? And do you know that your love for God will only be as serious as your surrender to God? As we finish the series, 
the invitation is very simple. Surrender. Why do we do this in worship? It freaked me out when I was a kid going to the contemporary church for the first time, especially when they did this. I thought they had a question and the preacher wouldn't call. Because it's the international symbol of surrender. That's why we do this. You know what your life is going to look like if you don't surrender. A lot of watered-down Pepsi. Why not try to surrender? Why not respond to this loving master? Lord, forgive us for the times that we have not surrendered. Help us to do that. I fully confess that I have many miles to go on that, and I want to fully surrender to you, and I pray that that would be the desire of all of our hearts. If we need correction about how good you really are, would you realign our thinking to, to reality? Father, help us to return to our first love. Help us to rest in you like we rest in the most comfortable bed. Help us to just fall in your arms. Help us to get up early and forego sleep and comfort just to get a glimpse of your face. Help us to lean into you, Lord. For those who are skeptical, who are seeking, would you just be patient, Lord? Would you keep drawing them? Would you help them to ask the right questions? Would you open their eyes? Would you remove the veil so that we might trust and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If we would.